Hi there, and a very warm welcome to Season 5, Episode 19 of People Soup. It's Ross McIntosh here. And my work, I'm very passionate about um, supporting people to be the best version of themselves. If I have a purpose, it's about helping people to discover and develop their sense of purpose. I love that. I love seeing the lights come on behind a person's eyes as they really connect with what it is that's important to them. And part of that work is about having that strong intention, but light attachment to developing that sense of purpose, people being able to carry themselves gently as they progress towards fulfilling that potential that they have. So I have a a real interest in helping people to explore opportunities to find that optimal balance between sustaining their performance and also safeguarding their well-being. I'd like to introduce you to Professor Ross White. Ross is the research director of the Doctorate in Clinical Psychology program at Queen's University Belfast. He's an expert in global mental health and has active research collaborations with the World Health Organization and the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. He's also an author, and his books include Acceptance and Commitment Approaches for Athletes' Wellbeing and Performance, The Flexible Mind. Above all, Ross aims to support humans in facing human challenges and live in alignment with their purpose. His consultancy is called Strive to Thrive, which has a special interest in supporting the mental health and well-being of adults working in high-performance environments, including elite-level athletes. And incidentally, I'd highly recommend that you sign up for Ross's monthly newsletter called Five to Thrive. You can enter your email address at strivetothrive.co.uk to receive it once a month. It's digestible, thought-provoking and useful. The simple concept of the newsletter is to provide five minutes of reading and five tips to help you thrive. In June's newsletter, he presents a thoughtful and useful reflection on purpose and also recommends a film and a book about the secret life of trees. Intrigued? You should be. And remember, you can sign up by the link in the show notes or at strivetothrive.co.uk. In this episode, you'll get to know Ross and a bit about his career history, including how he came across ACT insights into his research in different contexts, psychological factors in sport and the fine line between dedication and obsession. You'll also hear his song choice, which relates to his passion for supporting adults to be the best version of themselves and how he once rescued the BBC Radio 2 DJ, Sarah Cox, from a firework hazard. People Soup is an award-winning podcast where we share evidence-based behavioural science in a way that's practical, accessible and fun to help you glow to work a bit more often. You may well ask, where have I been? Well, the short answer is a bit overwhelmed by work, business administration, business travel, a terrible cold and finding I had little time to devote to podcasting or my own self-care. I'm pleased to report that I'm now achieving a more healthy balance and I've started to get back on my bike, which regular P-Supers will know is a cornerstone for my mental well-being. Let's just scoot over to the news desk because reviews are in for our last episode, which was a mashup 
it was me appearing as the guest on the Shit Shower and Self Care podcast hosted by the brilliant Steve Jones. Joan Mayer on Facebook said, That's why you are so amazing. Totally get what you are saying. My husband is black, and every training course or meet and greet, I felt the need to slip it in, just so no one made any comment that maybe made them feel uncomfortable. In actual fact, someone I work with now said, Only a few weeks ago, I was so shocked when I met your husband and he was black. There was no malice, but the ignorance is unknown and still there. And Claire Stafford, also on Facebook, said, Love this one. Loved your vulnerability. For me, it kept bringing up the Brené Brown quote, I'm here to get it right, not to be right. Big love. And finally, Ray Owen on Twitter said, I highly recommend this as a listen. It really meets the brief of the podcast, as men talking about stuff they normally wouldn't get round to talking about. Well, thank you so much to Joan, Claire, Ray... And everyone who listened, rated, shared it with a friend, reviewed it, talked about it to anyone. Your support is really very much appreciated. It helps us reach more people with stuff that could be useful. But for now, get a brew on and have a listen to part one of my chat with Ross White. Professor Ross White, welcome to People Soup. Great to be with you. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, I am delighted you're here. Now, as well as being my first professor on the podcast, Ross, which is pretty damn exciting, you're also a top bloke. So my research department have been digging up a bit of detail about you. So I'd like to present that back to you. So you just sit back and reflect on this because they've come up with quite a lot. Right. So it says here, in 2021, you were appointed the role of Joint Research Director of the Doctorate in Clinical Psychology Programme at Queen's University, Belfast. You're an expert on global mental health, and you have active research collaborations with the World Health Organization and the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. And this research is exploring the efficacy of psychosocial interventions for reducing distress experienced by refugees, particularly in the context and or aftermath of humanitarian crises. How's that for a start? Is that... I am that man, yes. Excellent. Good, good to know. You know, like when you get on a Ryanair flight and they say, this is a flight going to Seville. If you're not going to Seville, please let us know. So it's good to know I've got the right fella. Some other research. You're the principal investigator on the community-based sociotherapy adapted for refugees project, evaluating a psychosocial intervention for Congolese refugees living in Uganda and Rwanda. And you're also the UK principal investigator on a project co-producing forms of mental health and well-being support for indigenous Kankuamo communities in post-conflict Colombia. That's right. Turning the page. P-Supers. Ross is also an author and lead editor. One book is The Palgrave Handbook of Sociocultural Perspectives on Global Mental Health. And he also conducts research investigating processes involved in the linguistic and cultural adaptations of psychological therapies and assessment instruments for use with underserved populations. Now, that's particularly interesting to me because me and my mate Paul Flexman, contractually mm -hmm. known as Flexibabes, we're working on a project with Roscoe and Kamisi in Uganda, early stages, but looking to how we can translate the, the kind of manual we designed for a Ugandan audience in the workplace. Wonderful. And 
it's great work, important work, but it's also fantastic to learn about the triangulation of Rosses, right? There's me, Ross, you, the Ross, and then there's Roscoe over in Uganda. And um, yeah, just by the by, um, my uh, family call me Roscoe and Roscoe's family in Uganda call him Ross. So <laughs> we call ourselves the Ross Collective. You are now an honorary member of the Ross Collective. Crikey. Well, drop the mic, man, because I, I've, I've hit peak me, I think. <laughs> That's interesting because some of my friends, particularly those from uni when I went first time in Dundee, they call me Roscoe. Yeah. Who knew? Right. There's more. There's more from my research department. In 2020, you were recognized as one of the 10 people in the UK who are changing the face of health. Blimey. Yeah. I'm not sure how you fit all this in. That would probably be a question in a, in a moment, Ross. But um, it says here you're also very interested in supporting mental health and well-being of adults working in high-performance environments, including elite athletes. You are the lead author of a superb book called Acceptance and Commitment Approaches for Athletes' Wellbeing and Performance, The Flexible Mind. And that's published by Palgrave Macmillan. You are an Association of Contextual Behavioral Science peer-reviewed trainer of acceptance and commitment therapy, and also a fellow of the ACBS. Now that book I mentioned, I just wanted to give a shout out to the fellow authors who are, mm -hmm. if I've got this right, Andrew Bethel, Lewis mm -hmm. Charnock, Stephen mm -hmm. Leckie, and Victoria Penprise. Yep, that's right. And the authors and the publishers are super generous because alongside the book, there are seven free session guides to support the introduction of the flexible mind approach to athletes. But we'll come back to that a bit more in kind of the second part of our chat, Ross. Okay. I'm just turning the page again. I don't think I've ever had this many notes, Ross. I want to talk about Strive to Thrive as well, because mm -hmm. Ross leads a team providing specialist clinical psychology support, including evidence-based psychological interventions such as cognitive behavioral therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, and compassion-focused therapy. And that's strivetothrive.co.uk. And the two is the figure two. And there's also a brilliant, super useful newsletter called Five to Thrive, which is five minutes of reading, five resources to help you thrive. And it's all focused on mental health and well-being support. And they've supported a range of organizations, including Everton Football Club Academy, Rugby Players Ireland and Athletics Northern Ireland. Ross was previously a senior lecturer at the University of Glasgow and a reader in clinical psychology at the University of Liverpool. And we'll come back to Strive to Thrive as well in our chat because People Superstar podcast aimed at adults in organizations and elite sports people work in organizations. That's their job. Yeah. And I've got a second motivation as well. Obviously, you're using the same behavioral science that I use with organizations. But also, I think it's a real reputational convincer for me to go into an organization, say a private sector organization or a health provider, and say, this is used with elite sports people. I think for particular demographics in the non-sports workplace, that can be a real convincer and engage people's curiosity. Mm-hmm. Well, that's good to know. And yeah, I can see the parallels. And it's fantastic that that work can potentially help 
facilitate work in other sectors, as you've highlighted. So yeah, that that's great. And I think people people love to hear that. I mean, when I talk about, say, in a private sector or public sector, talk about my work with professional ballet dancers, mm-hmm. I consider them to be elite sports people. Mm-hmm. And yeah. they're super curious about how we apply. And it just shows the flexibility of things like acceptance and commitment therapy. I think it's been great to see people recognize that that sphere of high performance is broadening. I think historically there was, if you like, too much focus perhaps on elite sport and initiatives like the High Performance Podcast that um, Jake Humphrey and Damien Hughes present. They're really strong in emphasizing that people broadly live high performance lifestyles now. And it's fantastic to see, for example, the range of guests that you have on this podcast, they have on their podcast, helping people to appreciate that there is learning that's going to be transferable across different contexts that is going to help benefit people who are very committed and passionate about the work that they do. Couldn't agree more. And I've nearly reached the end of the notes from my research department. There are a couple more things which may be slightly more controversial. Oh, mm, lurking in the long grass. Yeah, yeah, they're they're forensic in their diligence, my my research department. Now, it says here you have a a little known link to Kaiser Soze, because (laughs) at uni, you were paid to appear in police lineups. That is true. Your department have done very good work here. Yes, I was approached one day walking through Belfast um, by a police officer. And of course you worry when that happens. And uh, I worried a bit more whenever he said to me, do you want to earn some quick money? Um, (laughs) (laughs) How do you respond to that when a policeman asks you? And it transpired that they needed uh, people to appear in police lineups alongside the suspect. So I must have one of those faces, Ross, that lends itself well to that type of work, yeah. Mm. Well, I think it's it's the face and the voice, because I'm curious, did you ever have to read out a line such as, and don't worry, Ross, I'm gonna bleep this out, but um, hand me the keys, you Did you ever have to read any lines out like that? No, that's much too tame for Belfast. Um, <laughs> No, fortunately, it was uh, without voice. Yeah, you had to remain silent throughout. So, um, uh, yeah, it would have been very amusing had we had the opportunity, but no. Ah, opportunity missed. And there's one more thing, which involves a heroic action on your part. You were, let's say you saved Radio 2 DJ Sarah Cox from a pyrotechnic incident one New Year's Eve. You're working (laughs) at a nightclub in Belfast And this is when her then husband, John Carter, was DJing. She was basically stood right over a pyrotechnic, I don't know what you call it, a pyrotechnic appliance uh, thing. (laughs) And you, in an act of selfless heroism, pulled her back from it in the nick of time at the expense of your left eyebrow. Now, as I look carefully at your there now, it appears to be recovered. Yes, that is true. The countdown was halfway through. We were at five, four, three, and Sarah Cox was stood right over this firework. So I had to run over, pull her back from the firework. And as I did so, the firework went off and singed my left eyebrow, which did fortunately grow back. 
So Sarah, if you're listening, you owe me, if you're ever in Belfast, I will accept the coffee. Um, so yeah, eyebrow singed, Sarah saved, coffee owed, yeah. I think. You heard it here, Coxie. Now, now get on it. And I think a coffee and possibly a dedication of a song choice. But we'll, we'll come on to that a bit later. Nice. Yeah, I think that would be the least you could do. And maybe some, I don't think you need any sort of, I don't know what it's called, threading. Mm. I was getting my hair cut the other day. And I'm at that age now when they suddenly start oh. flicking the scissors around your eyebrows. And I'm like, oh, geez, man. I'm like sort of Dennis Healy eyebrows. I haven't paid for a haircut in about 27 years. I calculated how much money I've, I've probably saved as a consequence of that, and it runs into the thousands. And so <laughs> those who are follically challenged out there, it's not all bad news. Wow, there you go. We yeah. can always look at things from different perspectives. Nice, good, like that. Now, now Ross, I've, I've shared with you what my research department came up with. But I'd love it if you just unpack that a bit. Talk to us a bit about your career trajectory, maybe some significant moments along the way that felt like this is a big pivotal moment. Great. Happy to. So I grew up in Northern Ireland, which is a beautiful place, but um, there were some darker moments growing up. Um, people might be aware of the troubles that happened here and growing up in what was a divided society where you had two communities, the unionist community and the nationalist community, who were to all intents and purposes fairly segregated, particularly around things like education, educated in different schools. And it was really interesting that my first democratic act, my first vote was the Good Friday Agreement wow. and being able to express my approval for that agreement which has done much to bring peace to Northern Ireland and to help communities come together. And it's um, really interesting to have grown up in Northern Ireland, but then actually to have moved away for 15 years mm. and to come back and live here again and work here again. And I'm very proud of our wee country and the island of Ireland more broadly. And it's great to come back and give something back to society here. I was educated at Queen's University Belfast. I did my psychology undergraduate degree there and uh, a PhD in psychology, uh, working to understand some of the challenges that people with complex mental health problems experience. There's a, an umbrella term, psychosis, that's used to capture quite um, difficult challenges, signs and symptoms that people experience, including quite distressing experiences like hearing voices that other people might not hear and having um, strongly held beliefs that uh, really start to impact on people's well-being. So it was really interesting during my PhD to learn more about what factors influence those experiences, but I was really conscious that I wasn't giving anything back to the participants I was working with. And at that point in time, I committed to training to be a clinical psychologist. And that would afford me an opportunity to give back and to help support the mental health needs of people. And I got onto the program at the University of Glasgow in 2004 relocated to Glasgow on the west coast of Scotland, which 
it was a fantastic place to work and to train and to meet people and establish networks. And I subsequently stayed in Scotland for 12 years. I worked for the NHS in an early intervention service for people with psychosis after I qualified and then got an opportunity to go back to the University of Glasgow as a clinical research fellow, uh, which is an opportunity really to progress your research career. But I was able to focus on a clinical topic and I was really interested at that stage in how what are called third wave psychological interventions, things like mindfulness, compassion focused therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, how well they would lend themselves to supporting people experiencing complex mental health difficulties. And in 2009, I had the opportunity to go to Enschede in Holland to the World Conference of the Association of Contextual Behavioral Science to learn more about acceptance and commitment therapy, because that's what my project was going to focus on, developing and evaluating an ACT intervention for people with psychosis. So it was at that point that I first got exposed to these great trainers, internationally renowned trainers, people like Stephen Hayes at uh, some of the workshops that um, I attended. And I never looked back. I just really connected with the approach. I could understand it. It made sense to me. And it just meant that I could be much more authentic and how that I practiced with the people that I was supporting. So that was the start of a, a wonderful journey, a journey that continues to this day and one that we're obviously talking more about today too. So yeah, Glasgow, I continued to work there and I had the opportunity to also develop a master's program on global mental health, which is concerned with addressing inequities in the provision of mental health support across the globe. We talk about postcode lotteries in countries like the UK, where if you live in an urban setting, services might be more available than they would be in a rural setting. So there are these discrepancies in service provision. Well, that also multiplies up whenever you look at the world. So across the globe, you have countries where the economy isn't strong and the prioritization of mental health difficulties isn't particularly high. So the money invested in the development and delivery of services for mental health is considerably lower than it would be in a country like the US or the UK or mm. France or Spain. So yeah, I was able to bring some of that knowledge I'd acquired at university where I also studied anthropology modules in addition to my psychology. So global mental health was this meeting space between culture and health and mental health and trying to find ways of developing accessible, scalable, but meaningful forms of support, forms of support that people were going to, to access. And the challenge with that is trying to ensure that we develop and deliver those forms of support using frames of reference that are meaningful and relevant to the populations that they serve. So global mental health was a great topic area 
and in time I was able to bring my interest in contextual behavioral science together with global mental health mm. and that's where those projects that you mentioned the collaborations with the world health organization and the united nations high commissioner for refugees came from and we were able to evaluate a self-help based form of act called self-help plus for use mm. with refugees both in sub-saharan africa but also in the eu and in 2016 then I was able to move down to the University of Liverpool because there were opportunities to progress that global mental health work in collaboration with colleagues at the University of Liverpool. And I worked there for five years and it was in Liverpool that I had that opportunity to progress that other area of passion for me, my interest in sport mm. and high performance working, for example, with the Everton Football Club Academy and providing mental health support, well-being support to some of the young footballers that they were working with there. Yeah, that's been great to consolidate that work and to develop Strive to Thrive as a clinical psychology consultancy firm that are committed to helping support the mental health and well-being needs of high-performance individuals, but also the general population more broadly. So in 2021, I had the opportunity then to come home. And I think for a number of years, I had realized that my heart remained back in Northern Ireland. And um, it was great to have the opportunity to go to Queen's University Belfast as a part of the alumni to return uh, a poacher turned gamekeeper <laughs> from being the student to being a staff member. So it feels like things have come a little full circle with that regard. So that's a bit of a, a rapid rundown of, of my career to date. And I've talked quite a lot, so I'll, I'll let you come in at that this stage. Thank you so much, Ross. It just, it helps slot everything into place and the, the movement between those different institutions. And if I may, could I just take you back to the beginning? Why psychology? I think in my latter years in high school at Wallace High School in Lisburn, I had been interested in doing medicine and I was involved in a road traffic accident. I was a passenger in the back of a car that overturned on a dual carriageway and it, fortunately nobody was seriously injured but that was in the year before my A-levels and I think it really did knock me for six in terms of my sense of where I was in life and what was important, what mattered, what direction I wanted to, to move forward in and I realized that medicine wasn't necessarily the option that I wanted to pursue. And I looked around for other options at that stage. And we had a fantastic biology teacher, Mrs. Johnson, and she had done psychology at university as part of her degree program. And she talked to us about psychology. And it just fascinated me to gain insight into how people think, how they behave, and to work at that level to try to help support people who may be struggling with their thoughts, with their emotions, with their behaviors. So I learned a bit more about psychology at that point. 
and I was pleased to get on to the psychology undergraduate degree at Queen's University Belfast then. Mm. Mm, thank you. And I see a really strong value shining through from you, making a difference and a value, perhaps, I'm just, my hypothesis is, is making a difference, equality and, and equity around the, the global mental health work. And I also see a value of just tenacity because we cannot underestimate the tenacity required to get things moving in those areas. What keeps you going to, to move towards that? Yeah, I've, I've always been tenacious in that way. Um, some might say stubborn. <laughs> <laughs> but when I, I set my mind to something, um, I'm really committed to seeing it through. That's an integrity piece, you know, about you know, standing by your word. And if you're saying that you're going to do something, do it. I've been influenced, I think, by family members around that. I've had some great influences in my life that have helped to see the benefit that can bring for others and how it helps you feel at ease with yourself as well. So yeah, tenacity and a commitment to, to seeing things through. But with that comes a recognition that team working is so, so important. And I look back at some of those initiatives that we've we've touched on and I recognize that that work has really relied on so many individuals putting their shoulders to the wheel and sharing some of the responsibility. And I'm very fortunate to have collaborated with many really, really committed and brilliant people. And I think specifically, I want to highlight work that I did with an organization called Committed Act. And they were involved and still are involved in supporting the training of non-specialists in Sierra Leone to help people with their mental health and well-being. And um, Beate Ebert is a German clinical psychologist who, in collaboration with Hannah Bockery, a, a very committed and talented woman from Sierra Leone, set up commit an act and they enrolled other people and called for support and help and I went over initially in, in 2011 to help with those training initiatives and I look at the arc the journey of that work and if you ask anybody involved in commit an act Hannah Beata myself colleagues like Ian May Karina Stewart were there times where you could have walked away from that? Absolutely. Were there times when everything's got tough and tense, where people ne didn't necessarily see things the same way? Absolutely. And I think a younger version of me would have at points stepped away from that because it was too confronting, too challenging. And I'm able to see that actually there was learning in that and being able to see that through, to work through those differences with the bigger aim in mind, being value guided and how we operated with each other, but staying true to those commitments and those goals that we set for the organization. So experience, I think, has helped to uh, hone and develop some of that tenacity, but also to bring through flexibility in how I work and how I interact with others. So yeah, tenacity, but flexibility too. Mm. And yeah, I, I, it's it's commit and act. Mm -hmm. I would say, you know, the charity has done enormous work and it is a charity and it does rely 
on donations. So yes, if people are are motivated to do so, do check out the web page. Do consider supporting the work that they do. For example, Commit and Act run uh, shelters for for girls who are subject to physical, emotional, and sexual abuse in Sierra Leone. Unfortunately, levels are particularly high and the support isn't necessarily available. So Commit and Act are doing very important work on that front. Folks, I'm just butting in to say there's more news at the end of this episode. If you do check out commitandact.org and read about their incredible work, and you're able to make a financial contribution, I'll match it to a maximum total value of 100 euros. Now back to the chat. I'm fascinated to hear you talk about your work in, in sports. When did that sort of start to align with your mm-hmm. psychological interest? Yeah, thanks for that question. When I was younger, I was very committed to sport. I played a variety of different sports, football, rugby, when I went to Queen's University, rowing, and also uh, jiu-jitsu, so interested in martial arts as well. And I would get in my way an awful lot. Don't get me wrong, I wasn't necessarily blessed with uh, huge amounts of talent, but that tenacious side of me would see me work at stuff up until a point. Uh, My psychology at that stage wasn't great. I wanted to be excellent at something before I was giving myself a chance to be good at it. Um, There's still a a seven iron golf club of my mother's in a row of fir trees on the fourth tee of Lurgan Golf Club. Whenever I, as a juvenile member, uh, was so hot-headed and so frustrated about not being able to hit the ball well, I launched the golf club into the fir trees. Could I find it? No. And the impending sense of doom about having to return home and report the loss of the said club to my mother uh, wasn't particularly appealing. So yeah, I could get very frustrated. I could see that my confidence would be impacted too easily, perhaps, that sense of, of not being good enough. So I recognized that psychology had a huge role to play in sport, and um, it's been an interest of mine for a long, long time, that intersection between the interest I have in sport, but also my professional work around the psychology and clinical psychology. And it's work that I've been developing really since 2015. That work started when I was in Glasgow. And as I said, I developed it further in Liverpool and made those links with other organizations, for example, Everton Football Club at that time. So coming back to Northern Ireland, it's been great to continue that work and to provide support to rugby players, tennis players, athletes, Paralympic athletes as well. So people are often curious about this interest that I have in mental health support and humanitarian contexts and then in high performance environments. And um, there are clear differences. Let me be very explicit about that. I recognize that those are very different contexts, but they are humans doing human things, experiencing human challenges in both of those contexts. People are subject to stressors. The stressors may differ, 
but the impact that those stressors have on people's ability to cope and their ability to live full and meaningful lives are similar. So I certainly take a lot of learning from both of those different contexts and I can see a lot of transferable skills between them as well, which is something we touched on during the introduction to the um, podcast today. Yeah, I, I absolutely get those, what people might consider to be radically different areas. They are still humans in different contexts and it helps us in each context by exposing ourselves to those different contexts. I, I get quite giddy working with professional ballet dancers and ballet companies in the UK because that's a totally foreign context to me. I kind of get a bit sort of Billy Elliot-ish imagining what could have been. But it's really observing that their processes and the context in which they're operating and the demands of a career like that, that can be quite short, as with some athletes. And I think it's changing a lot, but it feels like traditionally a lot of the support offered was in terms of physical health. We, mm -hmm. we need to get you that injury fixed so we can get you back on stage. Not so much mm -hmm. on the, the mental health support and the mental well-being, which is why I think in that work with ballet dancers, there's such a thirst for how can you give me skills and perhaps tools or perspectives that can support me? I think you're, you're spot on. I think people's ability to recognize the importance of psychological factors on performance is growing. Mm. You know, if you were to say to an athlete or to a coach, what proportion of your performance would you attribute to psychological factors, you know, the mind, they'll recognize that, yeah, a, a good proportion, right? It could range from anything, and this is anecdotal, uh, arbitrary numbers, shall we say, but I think it serves the point of illustrating it. They might say something between 25% of my performance is attributed to my psychology, and it could be as high as 75%, mm. right? So substantial proportions people might uh, recognize could be attributed to their psychology. If you then ask, well, how much time do you set aside? specifically for preparing yourself psychologically for your performance, I would say that be a fair degree of discrepancy between those two proportions. So people can see that it is a factor. It's an important factor, particularly in a world of marginal gains, mm. you know, think about those multiple tweaks across a range of different factors and how they can add up to quite a substantial change in performance. Yeah, people can recognize that it's important, but whether or not they have the know-how necessarily to know what they would do to mm. prepare or whether or not there's clarity in terms of who they can seek support from and the advice that they can access. It can be issues around funding, for example, and access to practitioners. So physical health might be prioritized physio support, nutritional support. Of course, there's tactical and technical support from coaches. Mm. So it's easy for other things that are less familiar to fall down the list of priorities. And I think psychological flexibility as a concept in, in sport is, is important for the reasons that you've outlined if you think about physical flexibility mm. being something people absolutely recognize as important to give you that supple ability to be malleable and 
to protect against injury, to have greater range of movement for your sport. People get physical flexibility as being important. So when you talk about psychological concepts such as psychological flexibility and that nimbleness and that ability to have a broad repertoire of potential ways of responding to difficult thoughts, emotions that show up, people get that, right? They can understand that. And for me, I think it's been great to see sports psychology recognized. So increasingly there's recognition that sports psychologists have an important role to play in high performance. And there's maybe not enough funding still to support the paid involvement Mm -hmm. of very skilled practitioners. So that's something that teams and organizations need to look to prioritize. But now we're starting to see growing recognition of mental health experts in high performance environments. And yeah, I'm very passionate about people don't need to sacrifice their well-being in order to excel with their performance. Because we could all work incredibly hard and be very dedicated and focused on improving our performance. It's a fine line sometimes between dedication and obsession. It's a fine line between wanting to excel and being perfectionistic. It's um, a fine line between being self-reflective and self-critical. And all of that can wear on a person. And eventually there is a cost attached Mm. to that commitment around performance. I just couldn't agree more. I I think just reflecting, uh, one of my colleagues I work with, with the ballet work, she's a psychologist, an organizational psychologist now, Jamie Tapper, but she's a former principal in the Royal Ballet. And she gives me so many insights and revelations really and talks about her mind used to she she would give her mind the nickname when she was a professional dancer of the strict governess or the Mm -hmm. drill sergeant just getting up doing your warm-up performing 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 which helped her frankly get to the role of principal in the royal ballet Mm -hmm. in a highly competitive environment so that in one hand that served her Mm -hmm. to to reach that part but in other hand it, it caused damage Mm-hmm. And now she can notice that same, Jamie won't mind me talking about this, but she can see that same drill sergeant showing up in other areas of life in a really unhelpful way. Yeah, I think those are great insights and people will be able to relate to those as well. And my work, I'm very passionate about um, supporting people to be the best version of themselves. If I have a purpose, it's about helping people to discover and develop their sense of purpose. I love that. I love seeing the lights come on behind a person's eyes as they really connect with what it is that's important to them. And part of that work is about having that strong intention, but light attachment to developing that sense of purpose people being able to carry themselves gently as they progress towards fulfilling that potential that they have. So I have a a real interest in helping people to explore opportunities to find that optimal balance between sustaining their performance and also safeguarding their well-being so that 
we don't have situations where people place so much emphasis on excelling that they end up threatening their well-being that people don't put so much effort on standing out from the crowd that they end up losing themselves and a sense of what truly matters to them i don't think it needs to be that way and i think psychological flexibility creates a great platform for helping people to find that optimal balance so that they can carry themselves gently as they are committed to realizing the ambitions that they have yeah absolutely agree it's that it's that balance and always coming back to the contents and the the workability which is a word that that's used quite a lot in your in your book and just thinking about your own flexibility and your tenaciousness too, mm-hmm. I'm really curious about how you fit everything in. Is there some sort of magical system you use to to get shit done, or is it something that's evolved for you? It certainly has evolved. I recognize in the past that there was a doggedness that wasn't serving me. So I think some of this work that I bring to supporting clients I'm working with is derived from lived experience. Hmm. I had a bit of a mini meltdown around 2017 in Seville, a city that you know well. It was at the World Conference of the ACBS and I was just burnt out. I was traveling an awful lot at that stage with the global mental health related work, which is fantastic. And I'm blessed to have had those opportunities to be supported in the work that I was doing in different countries, but it was taking its toll. And I have to acknowledge and recognize that I am a workaholic in recovery. And I know where some of that has come from in terms of my sense of self and my sense of self-worth whenever I was younger and perhaps being driven to demonstrate in these very kind of obvious and clear ways that I was being productive, that I was producing the goods. I was quite outcome focused in that way. And through my understanding of psychological flexibility and being able to learn more about myself and benefiting from therapy that I've received, I'm very open and honest about the difference that has made to me in my life. So sometimes the helpers need help. And that was a a massive experience and a very fundamental thing for me. So yes, being able to recognize my own inner drill sergeant, Mm. giving the drill sergeant a bit of a reboot and seeing, taking that noticer perspective and noticing how I can get sucked into that kind of relentless urge to do more and to see that actually that doesn't add up to being more productive if anything that takes away from it so yeah i'm in a much better place around that and i've got some good people around me as well that help support me with that so sometimes it's not the case that more 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 sometimes less is more and i think that's been a really rich learning point for me I'm much more focused on my processes now Mm. and uh, trying to be efficient and effective, but taking time to reset as well. So looking after myself, exercise, but also rest, spending time with my folk 
that um, I I like and um, yeah, benefiting from the love and support of my wife, Susie, as well, which is is great. Fabulous. Thank you for taking us through that and being being so open. I think for people to hear that is is really tremendous role modeling. Yeah, I, th I think I've benefited from seeing the learning from the courage and vulnerability of others in, in their sharing and that sense of shared humanity that comes whenever uh, you hear people sharing so openly. And I think that's been a bit of a sea change in, in sport as well, right? Whenever you see Simone Biles, Naomi Osaka, Serena Williams, Tyson Fury talking so frankly and openly about the challenges that they have experienced and being fantastic role models around um, mental health and well-being in sport. So I do hope that that helps to encourage others to do the same. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, Ross, I want to ask you a question that I ask all my guests, which is for a song choice that would announce your arrival in a room, whether it's a real room or a virtual room or your lounge or your local mm -hmm. supermarket. And what, yeah. what would you what would your choice be? It would be Snow Patrol Life on Earth, the album version, which has the 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 word explicit in brackets after the song title, um, because there's uh, a few rude words in there. And uh, I think that serves to emphasize some of the key messages um, in the song. So, yeah, I grew up in Northern Ireland at the same time that Gary Lightbody, the lead singer of Snow Patrol did, we're the same age actually. We're from the same county, County Down. I'm at one end of it and he's at the other. I don't know him personally. Um, some of my mates were actually at Dundee University at the same time that he was and had some uh, contact with them and they speak very highly of him. And from what I've seen of him and his bandmates, they seem um, very grounded and, and good guys. But that song is an appeal for simplicity, right? It's just life on earth. And sometimes we do complicate things. We do get in our own ways. And I think that um, song does a great job at really emphasizing that. There's an Irish man much, much wiser than me who once said the best of us are geniuses of compression, right? Geniuses mm. of compression. What did he mean by that? Well, it's about, I think, being able to uh, take quite complex ideas and explain them in simple terms. And I think that song uh, is an appeal to, to that as well. And it's something that I'm very committed to. So you mentioned about the five to thrive newsletter and these five resources a quote a concept a film recommendation a book recommendation and then an invitation to the reader is focused on trying to take some of these complex ideas and really strip them back into simple terms and I'm really committed to helping members of the public understand some of these psychological concepts that can make a real difference in their own lives that are relevant to performance settings, but also relevant to well-being so that they can learn about them and have important take-home messages. So, yeah, 
if people ask me what time it is, it's always five to thrive. Nice. Wow. That's it. Part one in the bag. Thanks so much to Ross for being so open and for all his research and drive supporting adults to be the best version of themselves in a whole variety of contexts. Also, I'm very grateful to Ross for his patience in waiting for me to publish this episode. Next time, it's part two of our chat, where we talk more about Ross's work with athletes, his book, Acceptance and Commitment Approaches for Athletes' Wellbeing and Performance, The Flexible Mind. And I've got two key recommendations. One is to subscribe to Ross's monthly newsletter, Five to Thrive. It's digestible, thought-provoking, and super useful. The second recommendation is to check out Commit and Act and their work in Sierra Leone. If it's possible for you, please consider supporting Commit and Act, either through donating your time, energy or expertise, or through a financial contribution. You'll find the links in the show notes, and if you do make a financial contribution, please do let me know, as I'll match each of your donations up to a maximum total value of €100. Euros. We'd love to get your reviews, so please let us know what you think on the socials or drop me an email or a voice note on WhatsApp. If you like this episode of the podcast, please could you do three things. Number one, share it with one other person. Number two, subscribe to the podcast and give us a five-star review, whatever platform you're on, and particularly if you're on Apple Podcasts. The Apple charts are really important in the podcast industry. And number three, share the heck out of it on the socials. This will all help us reach more people with stuff that could be useful. I love to hear from you, and you can get in touch at peoplesoup.pod at gmail.com. On Twitter, we are at peoplesouppod. On Instagram, at people.soup. And on Facebook, we are at peoplesouppod. Thanks to Andy Glenn for his spoon magic and Alex Engelberg for his vocals. Most of all, dear listener, thanks to you. Look after yourselves, peace supers, and bye for now. People often say that they they appreciate my voice. They find it quite relaxing. But hell, man, <laughs> are you are you after my crown? I think my crown has just fallen off. You do have a great voice. I've uh, listened to the podcast, and um, yeah, you've got uh, the voice for it. Well, man, back at you. I think maybe between us, we could get some voiceover work and conquer the world. But um, as a little side hustle, but I think we've both yeah, got enough. Why not?